High on a mountainside near the asylum in the ghost town of Jerome, Arizona, you are listening to Jerry and Kathy Wills. on the Jerry Wills Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect those of Jerry Wills, the Jerry Wills Show, the affiliates or sponsors, or Channel U. And welcome to another edition of the Jerry Wills Show. I'm happy you're here. Thank you very much for tuning in and checking this one out. I have a good show for you. Our guest is an Oriental medicine uh, medical doctor, uh, Oriental medicine. Her name is Tammy Bennett. And Tammy and I have chatted, you know, over the past few weeks, I don't know, maybe months. And I've, I've, gained a deep respect for who she is and what she knows is just really very, very interesting. And if you think you know about Oriental medicine, you might want to rethink that because um, I, I thought I knew a little bit, but I really don't. I, I don't even scratch the surface, really. I sort of touch the surface and go, oh, how about that? <laughs> so we're going to be talking with Tammy. Uh, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to be going through. Uh, everything from the history of Oriental uh, Chinese medicine to, uh, well, therapeutics. You have this or that going on. Well, what do you do? What can you do about it? So, you know, what, what is her approach? She's also very, very skilled with acupuncture. Uh, a variety of different modalities. So, Without any further delay, let's just bring Tammy on, because I'm sure she can tell you a hell of a lot more about this than I can. All righty, push the right button. Hello, Tammy. How are you? Hi, good afternoon. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. And folks, you're going to notice that there's a delay between uh, when she starts talking to when you hear her. It's a technical glitch. It's something in the connection. We've not been able to resolve it, so just bear with us on that. Um, yeah, we were we were talking earlier, and one of the things you just started, you know, telling me about that I thought was fantastic. I knew nothing about this, and I really don't know very much about you know Oriental medicine anyway. But you had mentioned that um, it's you know it's it's a quite it's quite an old practice. And, well, I'll let you talk about the Yellow Emperor and, and how all this apparently came to pass. Can, what can you tell us about that? So I attended acupuncture college about 25 years ago. And one of the textbooks that we used to provide us with knowledge of the basis, the foundation of what we learned was the Yellow Emperor's classic. And as a student, it didn't occur to me that this was anything I needed to further investigate. As a student, as you know, most people take for uh, gospel 
that the textbooks that you're using are textbooks that have been vetted and used for however long they've been used, centuries, millennia, and that you're learning something that has been passed down from generation to generation. So I have this book in my compendium of you know other books that I'm using to study. And it wasn't until later that I started listening to different podcasts and shows like yours that it occurred to me that the legend of the Yellow Emperor may not have just been a legend or folklore, but that there might be something more to it. And so I started doing a little bit of research and I found some really interesting things. One of the first things I had heard when I was doing my YouTube university work was that the Yellow Emperor was possibly a divine being, not necessarily just a lure, uh, a folklore, but a divine entity. And it was interesting because I had heard this on other people's uh, podcasts and on ancient aliens and things like that that I've listened to, and it was uh, familiar. So I decided that I would do a little bit more looking into it, and it several stories showed up. One of the stories showed up that Wang Di, the Yellow Emperor, was uh, basically born to a woman who was inseminated by an alien or a divine being, uh, an immaculate conception, if you will, and over 24 months was gestated and born to the world and was uh, given gifts and was uh, bestowing those gifts upon the ancient Chinese people, uh, providing them with information like mathematics and astronomy and how to build wooden structures and the art of war and the art of medicine, the art of tantric sex, uh, the list goes on. One of the other things that I found was that, um, and I'm gonna read this out loud, the uh, Yellow Emperor is cited as being instrumental in developing the entire Chinese society. He ruled over 100 years around 3000 BC and uh, Chinese medicine, wooden houses, writing, transportation, weapons, government institutions are all attributed to his genius and or knowledge. And his advanced extensive knowledge of the stars and the heavens were uh, of interest to historians. It suggests that instead of the birth story that I just told you about, that he descended upon the earth in a thunderclap on a clear day. And a lot of the shows that I listen to, much like yours, that talk about different UFO um, encounters and people's um, observation of UFOs, that uh, maybe that thunderclap, that clear day thunderclap might have been a portal that had opened up um, where he came about. It also suggests that he could summon a dragon from the skies that was described as having metal scales, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, it's possibly creative license to those that talked about his history or the, the folklore surrounding him, but it was very interesting that it sounded very much like a nuts and bolts uh, spacecraft. He also apparently kept in his possession a magical chariot, which was known as the Chang Huan. Um, the chariot 
could take him from any part of his kingdom to another part of the kingdom at great speed, and no one was allowed to touch it or be in it without his permission or his being in it. And at one point, there's a story that was told that someone climbed aboard the chariot and uh, returned aged. So this person took the chariot without Wang Di's permission and that he maybe have traveled the cosmos or something in that chariot and uh, maybe through warp speed, if you will, I put it into terms that some of the Trekkies might understand or some of that's that, you know, watch shows that are uh, about space travel might understand that that person aged, <clears throat> excuse me, dramatically after being on that chariot. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding Huangdi and it's important that we frame traditional Chinese medicine in, in two ways. Uh, the first frame would be that there's some folklore attached to traditional Chinese medicine and that there may be an element of extraterrestrial intervention in the knowledge that was given to the ancient Chinese. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. So he descended. It is. And there's some additional information I wanted to share. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. I was just, uh, just recapping in my mind that you, <clears throat> when you say that he descended, this wasn't, this was after he was born and grew into a man, or I don't get that part. So there are two separate stories. One is that okay. he was born on the earth and he was born of extraterrestrial, possibly DNA, that his mother was inseminated in some way, and that 24 months of gestation brought about Guangdi. And then the second story is that he descended from a thunderclap during the day out of the clear blue sky. Okay, I understand now. And this was roughly how long ago? So the dates that I have, the original date that I have was uh, 3000 BC. Wow. All right. That's quite a long time ago. And I don't have the history uh, or the timeline to be able to share with you what else happened around that timeline, if there were other entities or divine beings that had shown up at that time but i'm feeling in my heart of hearts that that could very well be some interesting research to talk to you about on another show yeah absolutely you know one of the things that just kind of pops into my mind about this and i i'm certainly not that skilled with all this information because it's just pieces i've i've touched into over the years but there was someone called Mithra, as I recall. And Mithra was kind of like Jesus doing, you know, bringing great gifts and knowledge and healing and all this. Um, and maybe someone who's watching is more familiar with this than I am. But it just seems to me that that was, you know, quite a long time before uh the figure of Jesus really came into uh, the public arena. And, I, and I've heard there have been quite a number of others uh, over quite a period of time. 
So yeah, this is something definitely worth looking more deeply into. This is this is fascinating stuff. I mean, whether he's from another planet, I mean, there, there are things that happened on this planet, Tammy, and we're going back much farther than three thousand BC. You know, we, we can go back, you know, fifteen thousand BC, when the world was a much different place than it is now, but it was still inhabited by people who had reached a level of technological acuity, uh, they were capable of doing great things, and they did great things. But then there were a series of events, uh, roughly 11,500 years ago, where, uh, among other things, the sun went uh, micronova and pretty much wiped out most of the life on Earth. There's just a small percentage of people left over. They repopulated this, this world, but everyone before them was lost. As well as the knowledge, and because of the, uh, the actions of the Earth fl flipping over on its side, water cascading over everything, earthquakes, mountains rising, you know, you get the idea. A lot was completely obliterated, yeah. and there was nothing left of these people to really speak of, except maybe some pieces here and there that were made of stone, and that's about all. So I wonder, you know, <laughs> if this could possibly be, you know, tied in to some ancient and uh, advanced culture, because they were a spacefaring uh, society. And some people speculate they left here and went somewhere else well, and it, came back. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting to note that the modern astronomers have uh, identified the Huangdi home star, that there was uh, an actual home star that was linked to him, uh, referred to as Xuan Yuan in the Chinese record, which is also known to us as uh, Alpha Leonis. And um, it's about 79 light years from Earth. So what's interesting is that many other cultures from antiquity hold this star in high regard. So I'm curious to do more work into that uh, area of research and see if this star system has some other entities that come from it that have been showing up in our history or ancient history as it were do you know of anything about that or well there is a fellow named wayne herschel i've interviewed him twice and one of the things um that he talks about is having to do with uh freemasons ancient cultures i mean all this stuff the part that really stuck out of my mind when you mentioned this, Wayne had said that there's a star called you know, Home, the Home Star. And I don't remember the name of it, but the, the name you used sounds quite familiar, but I'd have to go back and see. Uh, and folks, you who are watching, those both of those interviews are in the members area. Just go you know, check them out. I'm sure you'll be able to tell right away. Um, there are obelisks uh, in several parts of the world, like the Egyptian obelisk, tall, pointy at the top. Um, there's one in the Vatican, there's one in Washington, D.C., there's another in uh, Egypt. Those are the ones that come to mind 
first and foremost. And China's got quite a few pyramids that people don't even know about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've heard about these. I've always wondered what it would be like to go there and check it out, except they're not very friendly. Well, the point of this obelisk is that True. every year, and, and I, I'm sure, folks, this is not absolutely exact, exact, but there is a star that is invisible to the human eye that in September, um, and there's a time and a date every September that on this time and date, the little peaky top of the obelisk, right above it, this star is found there. And it doesn't matter if you're in Vatican City or Egypt or Washington, D.C. <coughs> this is something that all three of them at the uh, at the appropriate time in their time zones and the same day that this star hovers above that point and that's called the uh, point of origin and I just wonder what the uh, affiliation is between that and, and what you've just told us Tammy that's certainly worth looking into more deeply it's, it's fascinating So I'm looking at, uh, on the star chart, <clears throat> this Alpha Leonis is also known as Regulus, which looks like it's Leo, the lion. And if you're talking about September, uh, if I'm correct, uh, August is Leo that goes into September, right? Yeah. Does Leo go to the 21st? of September? No, Leo goes beyond that. Leo goes into September, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, so, you know, just have to Maybe go we're back talking and, about the same thing. Well, and if we are, wouldn't that just be fantastic? Because now we have another point of reference from be. another part of the world. Wow. Quite a thing. Yeah. I'm sure somebody who studies this a little bit more in depth since the medicine part is mine maybe somebody that has the astronomy background could chime in and let us know you yeah. you i assume you get show notes or people that are talking about your show as mm -hmm. it goes on correct oh sure yeah and i'm sure once people hear this they're going to be i follow you on patreon okay well thank you um there'll be people who start digging into this there was another fellow as well can't think of his name Oh, uh, maybe Kathy remembers. Who is that uh, That pastor? What? Anyway, he wrote um, Apollyonis or Apollyon. Oh, Tom Horn. Tom Horn. Yep, Tom Horn. Hold on, what? It's in Tennessee or Arkansas. Yeah, Tennessee or Arkansas. Anyway, Tom Horn wrote a book called Apollyon. <clears throat> and... It has to do, of course, with, you know, some of the same things we're talking about, except in his world, some of these things also have to do with, uh, for example, the binding box. The binding box is underneath the obelisk in Washington. It has chains and inside of it is a Bible and the Bible is wrapped in chains because, oh, 
well, and I don't remember specifically, <laughs> but it has to do with allowing Satan to come into this world. And um, you've got the obelisk and you have the, uh, you know, the Capitol, you know, the White House, and the rotunda is the uterus and the obelisk is the phallic symbol. And I don't know, there's, there's this whole thing that goes on. If you have a chance to uh, listen to Tom Horn, he explains it remarkably well. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating material. But it, it still has to do with that, that well, I'm star. Starting to, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if data that's downloaded to us is coming from these celestial uh, beings and celestial, uh, you know, what do you call them, uh, meeting points or energy points, if you want to call them that. Um, it makes sense if that's true, right? Because that amount that that amount of data that Wang Di would have to uh, insert into us, whether it was telepathically or physically, you know, math, music, war, medicine—that's a lot of information, even in a hundred years, to disseminate to a For population. Sure. Well, that's right? a terrific level of of knowledge to impart, and to have it. Sure, and. It's interesting for me to note that after Huang Di, who's supposed to be the, the founder of modern Chinese society, that all of the emperors thereafter were sealed away from public gaze. I think that's fascinating to think about because you weren't supposed to look upon him or any other emperor thereafter. And I thought that that was interesting to note because I think, well, let me look here on my notes, the story behind, so the, the forbidden city in China, right? they're talking about the fact that um, it, it came to a monk in a vision and is also a megalithic structure. And part of the forbidden city is made of colossal stones. We've heard this story over and over again, right? The colossal stone story. How did the stones get there? What was the technology? Did ancient aliens help? disseminate the information or do they actually partake or is there some kind of vibrational frequency that was known then that isn't known now to be able to move colossal structures or colossal stones um you know they're 300 tons a piece this is not a new story right we've heard this about egypt and other places so i think it's interesting that china has this information that is not well known china's not actually been very uh forthcoming with knowledge to the west you know that's a it's a big thing. And I, I also think it's interesting because in my training, we were told that a lot of these classic textbooks were hidden because of the uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party coming in and basically during the Mao era, destroying everything that was related to history of this nature. Why that is, I don't know. Wow. Whether, whether it had a, a real political reason for it or whether it was to quash knowledge and keep the people oppressed. You know, was it, was there something else nefarious going on? Well, one thing's for sure. If folks have some idea that they have quite an ex exotic um, heritage, you know, that's one thing to empower people. The other is, well, just knowledge. 
And you combine both of those and the people suddenly realize they're more than just the sum of their parts. And then you take the philosophies from that era, throw that in with equal measure. And now you have a group of people who probably are going to be very difficult to control. Well, during the Maoist era and even until now, yeah, you become too independent, you become a danger, you know, a threat to the ruling class, you know, to those who seek to exude power and manipulation over the masses. You can't do that for people who are smart and know what's going on and know their history. You see a lot of that going on in, in this country as well. There are things that are covered up and, and uh, hidden away because we shouldn't know it. You know, the things that we should know, uh, they think we should know. <laughs> it's, it's always just seemed to me like it was a point <laughs> of manipulation, really, uh, for these folks to, to keep us forever pointed in a direction of their choosing. I'm glad that we're having conversations and <clears throat> learning more about the hidden things, but that's only possible at this point because of the Internet. You know, take that away, and in 25 years, yeah. a lot's lost again. One of my great hopes in coming on your show and talking to people through my YouTube channel is to empower people to learn about the way that old medicine used to be, the, the real knowledge about the body. You know, people ask me all the time, um, what, how, how did acupuncture start? Like, Who was the first person to take something sharp and poke it at somebody, and why did that happen? And the way that I was taught was that the Chinese people were so much more evolved in their uh, understanding of the human body because they, they were uh, a warring nation or a warring society and they took live prisoners and did a lot of dissection and things with the human body and they had a much clearer understanding at a much earlier time than the West. And that the history shows that the Chinese people used little tiny fish bones and whittled them very thin and would stick them into these prisoners and watch them ooh-ow and see where the nerves would flinch and so on. And while that seems relatively reasonable to someone who's, you know, 25 years old like myself in acupuncture school, and then 25 years later, I'm, I'm, eyes wide open to much more um, information about the history of us as a planet and thinking to myself that sounds a little unreasonable that that's how this really went down maybe there was a big data download of information because acupuncture needles are made of metal and I cannot imagine a fishbone eliciting an electromagnetic field response like what metal does and right. metal does that, right? And fishbone is more, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, earth-based. You know, you, you might get a the frequency of the planet, but I, I doubt fishbones had the ability to produce what we see now on thermography and on MRI and other types of resonant frequency data points that we use in the medical field to affirm that we're doing something that we're changing something physically with someone 
So I, I don't know that I buy the whole fishbone theory anymore. I, I feel like this seems to make much more sense. And it, it could be a desire of mine, but if you look at the long history of UFO sightings in China, it's it's pretty intense. I mean, it, it's, it's there if you look. There was, um, I'm gonna read this to you. There was an account of uh, uh, an emperor, uh, Jiayou, who ruled from 1056 to 1064. And according to the tale, uh, the up and coming city of Yangzhou in the Jiangsu province was visited by strange flying craft that glowed as bright as a pearl, most often emerging or hovering over one of the city's many lakes. We've heard this lake story many times about extraterrestrials and or UFO activity over right. lakes. One particular account of the bright pearl-like object tells of a man witnessing doors opening before an intense light, so bright that it was blinding to the human eyes and uh, shot out in all directions. The object rose from the ground, descended into the lake like a setting sun. That's one of many. And in a painting called Red Flames in the Sky, sometimes translated as Red Hot Flame Hovers in the Air, uh, a Chinese painter, Wu Youru, in 1892, said to have had an artistic account of his own UFO sighting, and there are many. So I would leave it to the audience to think about this in a little bit different framework. I'll promise to do more research and come back on the show and see what I can find. Part, part of my challenge is to know that I have resources that are legitimate. You know, you can read a lot on the internet and it can come from anywhere. Sure. But citing resources is really important to me and I'm actually gonna talk to some professors of mine from the college that I attended for our acupuncture and holistic medicine and see if they have uh, some additional resources I can actually dig into and come back on the show and talk a little bit more in depth about it. But my, my, in, my inclination is that the traditional Chinese medicine, especially the energetics of the medicine come from another place. Like, you know, the yin yang symbol, you just talk about right. that. Light is dark, dark is light, a little bit of element of each. Um, that's not, that's not easy conceptual information that you would take from, you know, a primitive society and then write this information down within a couple of hundred years and, and found, uh, um, a system of medicine that half the world uses for thousands of years. You know, it, it doesn't doesn't ring true that way. Well, I understand, and I agree with you completely. You know, there's some very deep philosophical aspects to this. And, and reflecting back onto those giant stones you were mentioning, you know, Kathy and I have been places where <clears throat> these were used to create um, huge megaliths. And the care and placement of these stones is it's just un, unimaginable it's there's just no gaps there's there's no flaws in any of it um we're thinking because a lot of people go oh well maybe it's extraterrestrials well i don't know because i think what happened is that in this world before that i had mentioned these are what was left over and uh they were built on energy spots, maybe energy spots at that time. And maybe there's still energy spots, I don't know. I mean, some places are for sure. And then other cultures come along and build on top of this because it's such 
an extraordinary accomplishment to do something no one in the current their current age could possibly do. But then that that takes us in, into a point of divergence because on one hand, what you have studied to become a doctor of could be extraterrestrial medicine or it could be you know medical practices from such a far ancient time that the world's even forgotten who these people were except these elements are now the only thing that are, there remain and I don't know which it is maybe a bit of both perhaps it very well could be Jerry I think it's worth exploration what what makes me feel good about it though every day that I see a patient I work a lot of hours I see patients almost seven days a week and the consistency of it is astounding to me. I I really, uh, honestly, Jerry, when I first got into this, it's going to be a funny story. I was in my 20s. My ex-husband got hurt on a, a workman's comp case. And we were looking for an alternative treatment for him because his dad had had surgery, stepdad. And the surgery was botched and he became uh, paraplegic. And the idea of surgery was very scary for us, especially in our 20s. And uh, he suffered a herniated disc in his lower back, L4, L5, and he had trouble walking. And he was a burly construction worker kind of guy. And it was devastating. And we searched and searched for a way to help him heal. And we stumbled into acupuncture. There was a little tiny college in a little podunk town in Florida. And we went to the the school clinic to help him get treatment. And they, it was, I think it was like $20 a treatment. They wanted him there four times a week. And after a week or two, he was much improved. And, and he was the most difficult person to have had this healing because he was very skeptical. And I watched him and he would have treatment and I'd be in the school library reading the books and I was bored out of my mind and there were no cell phones back then. And the magazine selection was terrible. And I just kept pulling books off the shelf and reading stuff. And the Yellow Emperor's Classic was on that bookshelf and herbal medicine was very interesting to me. And they treated him with kindness and respect and all these needles and burned moxa and all this fun stuff. And I was like, this is cool, if nothing else, but it made a huge impact in our lives. And I'll never forget the day, the director of the school's name, his name was Dave. And I was sitting in the waiting room reading one of the books and he kept walking back and forth, watching me read this book. And he finally decided to say something. He said, you know, if you're interested in acupuncture, we, this is a school, you, if you wanna to come to school, you know, I've got classes of 10 and 20 people. We're starting a new class next year. And I said, this is not for me. You know, my husband's in there. and. I'm in the corporate world and I have aspirations to be a, you know, go-getter salesperson and I'm going to make millions of dollars and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, okay, you know, but uh, this is a really cool industry. I, I feel like in the United States, you know, we've come so far since the 70s with acupuncture and holistic medicine and traditional Chinese medicine. I really think it's the wave of the future. And I said, okay, you know, I'll think about it. And a couple of weeks went by and I started learning about acupuncture for beauty and facelifting. And that was, you know, my thing. I was very interested in that makeup and hair and um, 
I remember talking to my ex and I said, no, I'm thinking maybe I'll do this acupuncture thing part time and develop a clientele where I have beauty treatments in my house and then I'll do my sales job during the week and I can make extra money. And he said, that's a really good idea. So a couple months went by and my husband was back to walking again and he was going to go back into construction. And the traditional Chinese medicine doctor that was working on him said, I don't think construction is a really good idea for you with the way your back is. You should probably do something much more uh, less physical. Sure. Well, we want you to exercise. We want it to be in moderation. And my ex was dumbfounded. And he said, I don't even know what to do. And the director of the school said the same thing to him. Maybe you should do acupuncture since you're healed from acupuncture. You're do doing well. Maybe it would be a good thing for you to teach people and help people have acupuncture. So the, Dave made us an offer we couldn't refuse. He said, if you two decide to come to school here, I will pay your way and you can pay me when you're done. No wow. loans, no grants, no nothing. And it's three and a half years of your time. We have schedules for daytime and nighttime classes and we'd like you to join us. And we did. And I remember the first day sitting at a round table, it was a, a, a conference room and there were people uh, of all walks of life, myself, my ex-husband, uh, a Korean guy named Jim, uh, a lovely woman with beautiful red hair wearing a purple outfit named Rusty, and a guy named John and a kid named Scott and a young lady, just a, a whole different groups of people, all ages. I was in my 20s, uh, Jim was in his 70s, so the, the gap in between, we, we were from all walks of life. And the director said, uh, I want you all to tell us your story. Go around the table and tell us why you're here. And these stories were amazing. So I remember Jim, the Korean guy, and he said, I'm here because I nearly died. I had liver failure and acupuncture saved my life. I was like, wow, that's not my story, but okay. And then everybody went around the room and there were equal stories similar, you know, acupuncture saved my life. I felt, you know, I've got a calling, I'm here for a reason. And then it came to me and I said, well, my husband here has had a good success with acupuncture, but I'm here because I need a side hustle to make extra money. <laughs> and everybody looked at me kind of funny and I'll never forget it because probably six weeks into the program, I met a guy who was a licensed psychiatrist who was attending uh, the clinic there. He, he had had a terrible uh, lung infection and he didn't trust doctors. It was like, he was a doctor who didn't trust doctors. And I'll never forget him. He, he was, my, I was the junior intern in the clinic at that time when he came in and there was a senior intern working on him. And he looked at me and he said, why are you here? And I said, well, I, I, I'm, I was honest. I said, I want acupuncture to be a side hustle. I'm going to do beauty treatments and I'm going through the program. My, my husband here has had great success, but I, you know, I'm here for a different reason. And he goes, no, you're not. And I stopped for a second. He goes, I, I want you to treat me. I want you to work with this senior person, the senior intern and work on me really help me. And it was profound, Jerry. It was, it was like the light bulb went off. And that was the day I realized I was there to help people and not just have a side hustle. 
Wow. And that's how it all came to be for me in that way. <laughs> and it's changed your life completely. 100%. Huh. That's, that's a hell of a neat story. Yeah, I've, I've got something similar too. I. It's the oh. truth. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get it. You know, you know, when someone uh, surprises you like that, you don't even know what to think or how to respond. It's like, what? You know, someone told me many, many years ago, uh, I was in Texas doing a conference about UFOs. I was the only one at the conference, by the way. <laughs> and they had, you know, I was the speaker for these group of people. Anyway, there's this woman there that I didn't know. I didn't know any of these people. Very tall gal, uh, short hair, and at an after-event barbecue, because they like to barbecue in Texas, um, she told me she needed me to heal her. Well, I didn't talk about healing at all. <clears throat> and she says, yeah, you're a healer. So I've been, of course, doing this since I was a kid, but I kept it a big secret. Well, I put my hands near her, and she just looked at me and says, that's not how you do it. She grabbed my hand, put it right on her, on her stomach, and said, that's how you do it. Now get to work. And amazing things happened, you know. I'm sure they happened for you, too. But I, I just referenced that because I remember how startled yeah. I was to have a complete stranger just say something like that. It shakes your boots, you know? Yeah, yeah, it does. It really does. I think one of the things for me that's kind of keeps me rooted is the, uh, the very nature of Chinese medicine, that it's very nature-oriented. You know, the things that I do, a lot of people don't realize, and I'll, let me put this into a, a, a neat little package for people. Traditional Chinese medicine is what I studied. I didn't just study acupuncture. And traditional Chinese medicine is everything related to the holistic way of observing, diagnosing, coming up with a treatment plan, and, and treating a patient, right? The state of Florida has its um, chapter 457, which is the state statute that covers what I practice and how it works. Other states have different practice acts, but the way that traditional Chinese medicine is taught is um, to be able to differentially diagnose someone and find out what the pattern of disharmony is for them and treat based on the pattern of disharmony. And these patterns are steadfast, right? They're not, they don't change very much. So what I'm supposed to do with the patient is observe them from the very beginning, when they walk in the door, the way they sit, the way their posture looks, their face, their demeanor, um, their coloration, their smell, their texture. Uh, it, it, it wasn't uncommon for the backwoods Chinese doctors to uh, smell excrement, to sniff a person, their body odor that's not, you know, back then deodorant wasn't warm, right? So they were, yeah. they were really checking a person's entire constitution for imbalance, right? Any, 
when there's harmony, right? That yin yang symbol, when you've got the, the black and the white and the little dot, and the little dot, and everything's in harmony, that's when your body is at peace, at the most peace and wellness is existing inside body. But dis-ease comes from an imbalance of those things. And it can be an imbalance of heat and cold. It could be an imbalance of wet and dry. It can be an imbalance of um, uh, different systems that aren't working well together from emotional impact, right? So there's a lot to that. So the, the way in which we come up with differential diagnosis is earth-based medicine, right? Whereas Western medicine is blood work, testing, MRI, CAT scan, technology related. But what I do is old school hands-on, right? Very similar to Native Americans, very similar to other cultures that do hands-on healing and herbs and dietary changes and recommendations and prayer and so on. So one of the things that I like to talk about with my clients is uh, tongue diagnosis, right? So observing someone is one thing, but the other is to observe the tongue. And I wanna read uh, about tongue diagnosis sure. so that your audience can do their own uh, miniature diagnoses in the mornings where they can mm -hmm. get up and look at what's going on on the tongue and do some very basic things to help themselves. And if they need additional consulting, they can contact me and I'll do differential tongue diagnosis or face diagnosis or other things for them uh, via Zoom, similarly. Um, because I do that for other clients, but uh, a normal tongue body, right, is indicative of the status of the blood, the organs, and the chi or the energy flowing through the body, right? And a normal tongue should be pink or light red in color. If it is not, and it has a bluish or purple tinge or reddish tongue body, it can indicate heat and cold conditions or the reddish purple can indicate heat and blood stagnation. A dark red purple tongue that is dry can indicate depleted fluids because of excess heat. Or lightish, lightish blue, purple, or green tinge can indicate cold or blood stagnation. And when you look for those different indicators of the tongue, there are mostly ways from a dietary perspective to help a patient, right? And so, very simply, if I look in the mirror in the morning before I brush my teeth and I look at my tongue and daylight is probably the best way, not fluorescent light in a house or taking a flashlight and shining it on the tongue, you can see the really, uh, the true color of the tongue. And if someone has a purplish discoloration to the base of the tongue, and that's not something that came from food, like purple popsicle or something weird, a beet juice or whatever that they ate, then that indicates most of the time what's called blood stagnation. And, and those people, and it can be on certain parts of the tongue, but just overall that purplish color means that the person needs to um, drink and eat foods that relieve stagnation. And those are things that are uh, light, like neutral foods, like chicken or water or broth and things of that nature. So that's just one example. Uh, if someone looks at the color of the fur on the tongue, that's a really good indicator of hot and cold. And if you look at your tongue in the morning, again, same thing, natural lighting or just a flashlight, 
you can see whether there's a yellow or white coating. Now, there's a normal layer of light white coating. That's normal. But if it's excessively yellow, that means that someone has heat going on in the system and they want to eat cooling foods for a couple of days, maybe even a week, and check the tongue coating again after and see if it disappears or becomes that light white coating. So they want to do things like um, celery or watermelon or drink more water, watery related foods that help reduce heat in the system. And I don't mean just go eat ice cream or ice cubes. This, this has to be more holistic in nature. So things that contain water would be beneficial for someone that has a heat on the tongue. In addition to that, they can use uh, things to avoid like reducing alcohol or reducing heated foods, meaning uh, spicy foods like hot peppers or jalapeno or anything that has a um, high spice value to it and eat things that are more bland. And then as the tongue changes, the internal body then changes and they become healthier and then they can reintroduce things to the diet. If the reintroduction of the foods to the diet causes the heat to come back, that yellow tongue, that means that that person's probably intolerant to that particular food and they should consider eliminating those from the diet on a very consistent basis and they'll eat them every so often to make sure that they don't create that heat environment. So those are just some examples of very old school earth-based medicine and what to look for for people that are at home that are thinking about um, you know, what, what does this tongue mean and what is it, you know, what do I have that could be causing me trouble? The other thing I wanted to mention is the red tip of the tongue. Uh, on the tip of the tongue, the area related to uh, the tip is the heart. And I've seen clients that have emotional trauma that has either been deep-seated or new that basically can show up in the tongue. And when the tongue tip is very red, that means that there is either an emotional issue or that there is heat in the heart. In a lot of cases, if it's emotionally related, it can be benefited if the patient does things like qigong or tai chi or meditation to relieve the emotional stress. And I recommend that very often for my clients. There are other things that people can do, but those are the easiest things that they can do at home to balance out the heart. If there's a physical condition with the heart, then that's something that in Western medicine, we have to be very careful where we look at the cardiac function. And if it's not something that's happening immediately, that there are ways from a dietary and supplement and herbal standpoint to help the patient with heart-related issues. What, what color is your tongue, Jerry? I don't know. Hmm. Oh, my mouth is dry, I can tell you that. You want to show it to me and I'll tell you? Sure, give me a second. <laughs> I just drank some blueberry juice, so it's probably blue. Okay. <laughs> it's probably blue, yeah. Sure. Oh, let's go for it. Get close. <clears throat> let's see. Okay, so what I can tell from here, and I don't have a flashlight on you, but it looks like you have a little bit of a white coating to it mm -hmm. and a line down the middle. So the white coating would be that things are too cooling in your system. You may be doing more raw foods and, and things 
people that eat salads or raw vegetables or smoothies that are raw tend to get too cold and they overdo it. And that causes their system to be uh, too cool. And you want to add more cooked foods to the diet. I see this a lot with people that go on detox diets. They're like, oh, I'm detoxing and their, their system gets very cold because they're doing everything wrong. Right. So I'll, oftentimes I'll recommend that people go ahead and start doing uh, bone broth, uh, uh, some cooked foods, cooking the vegetables instead of raw to balance that out. So that would be something I would recommend if that's the case for you. And then the other thing with the line down the middle, oftentimes that's the spleen stomach line. So there are two things to that. The stomach line can be related to food in and of itself or that the stomach is in jeopardy for some reason. It's either been uh, in, insulted by food or um, emotion. But the spleen can also be a form of overthinking or overworry. And if someone's an overthinker or they worry a lot, yeah, that's where that line comes from. And that's an emotional thing. So that's something that we, we try to uh, teach our patients to learn how to be more effective with that over worrying and usually expelling that worry energy through physical exercise is the way to do it. Physical exercise is desperately needed on this end. And there's, there's a, I don't know what happened, but um, back when we were um, trying to, we, we'd moved to Peru, we're trying to leave. Um, there were people in government offices trying to extort money from us. And I just told them they're a bunch of damn bandits so because they wouldn't do the job we asked them to do, even though we paid them. Well, we'll get to it in a year or a year and a half. And I just told them they're a bunch of bandits to the job you're supposed to be doing. Well, the next thing you know, word on the street, because we were helping street kids, getting them shoes and feeding them. Because in Quito's Peru is a very, very poor place. So we had uh, our own personal outreach. These kids came and told us that someone in the Peruvian uh, hierarchy was going to try and plant drugs in our house. Well, we had a huge-ass house that had previously belonged to the CIA. And so that was a big concern. And then I got uh, the CIA station chief. No one knew he was that, but if you live there, you did. He came to me and said, I just want to let you know if you're doing drugs, probably shouldn't. I was Virgil from Texas <laughs> down there at the restaurant he owned. So that freaked us out. And from that point on, I've been a worrier. We finally did get out of Peru and very, very quickly. Um, but we knew it was a real threat because we were supposed to fly down to uh, the border town. I think it's called Leticia, the border of Peru and Colombia. Uh, and he had to go out of country, passport stamped, come back in 24 hours later. We decided we were leaving Peru instead of going to do that. But we already had the tickets. It's all right. We're not going to do this. Well, that plane that we would have been on was shot down by the Peruvian military. And the plane belonged to a, uh, a pastor. It was a white Cessna with a blue uh, dove of peace on the tail. While the CIA was flying along in their little Learjet filming, the Peruvian military sent in uh, jets to rake that plane with machine gun fire and caused it to crash into the jungle. One person survived, everybody else died in Peru. 
they all just, including the pastor's wife, and she was pregnant. We heard about this after we were out of Peru because the day we were supposed to be going on that flight was um, uh, the day after we arrived in Miami, so we got the hell out of there. So it's just been a worrisome thing, and I just developed a knack for being just a worry ward about every damn thing there is. You know, I have a and that's that line, that crease down the middle. Yeah. How do you get rid of that? How do you get rid of the anxiety? I mean, hell, we've gone down there so many times, just wore ourselves out, climbing mountains. And since that happened, so I don't know. Um, I think the, the, the best thing that I could suggest is for you, and, and I'm assuming that you do this, but I, I shouldn't assume. I assume you meditate. You you put yourself out of your body and you go someplace and you you relax and you put yourself into a state of um, bliss. If you don't, then start. And and physical exercise expels that energy, that that worry energy. So activity of some kind that makes you sweat is helpful. I know you guys hike and do things, you know. On, uh, when you're on location, but I don't know what your day-to-day -day is, but that's something that you should think about. And eat nourishing foods that nourish the spleen. Unfortunately, I don't have my, my little book. Um, I usually have a book with me by a guy named Davrick Leggett. Uh, the book is called um, Chinese Food Energetics, and that's one that I use. It's in my home library, and I have a whole list of, of spleen chi-supportive foods, and there are herbs. I'll send you a list privately, and you can start looking at the list and see what you can do to help support this. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, in, in your, um, you bet. So in, in, in your, in your, um, your pharmacy of all the different herbs and things that you use, and you, you must have some kind of pharmacopoeia that you can draw from, right? Okay. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Well, I just a question about one of them, because I know this has been around forever, and that's cannabis. Is cannabis something that's in the uh, the pharmacy of things that you use? And if so, what do you use it for? It's so funny you say that. So as I was doing more of my research for this interview, uh, when we were talking about Wang Di earlier, they uh, legend indicates that cannabis was found by Wang Di's wife. So uh, the silk, uh, supposedly silk came from her, that she, she had a silkworm and it fell into a cup of tea and she saw silk and decided that silk would be a fabric that could be made and um, used for trade and so on. And the same thing with cannabis, that there's a link to Wang Di's wife and the use of cannabis in ancient uh, ancient legendary, you know, documentation, if you will. Um, as far, when, when I was given the pharmacy test, the pharmacopoeia test for uh, traditional Chinese medicine herbs, cannabis was not mentioned. So we didn't use it at all in uh, our formulations, nor was it used uh, in the, in what I can tell of the, I mean, I've got a compendium right here, the formularies like this thick. Um, I don't see it there, but if it's under a different name, then it could be in its Chinese name. So that I'm not sure. So I, I actually don't use it in practice. Um, funny enough, in my office next door, there's a gentleman that is um, 
a marijuana medical marijuana uh, doctor. So he actually prescribes medical marijuana here in the state of Florida for patients, and I actually refer them to him because state of Florida requires um, that a medical doctor dispense the medical card and then a dispensary actually use uh, or, or a person actually uses a dispensary to obtain medical marijuana. CBD also isn't really mentioned uh, because it's a molecule that's extracted from cannabis. Right. Um, I used to use CBD quite a bit for patients and I still do, uh, but it's not part of like the pharmacopoeia. Um, like one of the common ingredients in old herbal formulas was something called mahuang and mahuang is ephedra it's the herbal ephedra and it was taken off of the pharmacopoeia because they didn't want people using it but back in the days when i went to school mahuang was still used so we, we learned how to combine mahuang you know we had these big jars of herbs we would put our hands into it you could feel it smell it taste it um put the herbs into a boiling pot boil down the herbs uh, strain them, put them in big containers and tell people how to take the herbs. And mawang was used all the time for asthma. It's a very common treatment for asthmatics uh, to open up the lungs and the heart. But regulation kind of came down and, and took mawang off, uh, off the list. So there are many. Uh, I, I can tell you my books are gi gigantic. In Peru, one of the things that's in their... Uh on their list of, of good things to use are coca leaves. And I'll bet at some point in um, in Chinese medicine, oriental medicine, that this was also used there as well. Um, because if you take uh, sure. the coca leaves and brew it into a tea, if you have asthma, it just goes away. And I've if I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. But, I mean, you can chew the leaves. Uh, you have to use calcium uh, calcium citrate, I think it is, um, to activate the coconoids in, uh, in the coca leaves. But it, it doesn't get you high or anything. It's not that sort of a thing. It, it, they chew it all the time in the Andes so that they can breathe at, at uh, altitude. And we've done it many times. Uh, if you go into the members area, look for coca leaf 101, you'll see exactly what I mean. You know, Kathy describes how you chew coca leaves. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, right. But we've we've been climbing in the mountains, and oh my God, you just get so tired. And the higher you go, the, the more labored it is to breathe. It's hard to have a cigarette at 12,000 feet. So you just go to a coca plant, pull off the leaves, chew them up. And within two or three minutes, you just keep them in your mouth. You don't swallow them. Uh, you, you just feel right. refreshed and you just keep on going. You breathe just fine. It's, it's really good for high elevation, uh, altitude sickness that, that kicks it in the head. So, you know, I think that there probably are things that because of contemporary culture and, and, and prohibitions, there's probably things that should be there within your knowledge base that might be missing because of these conventions. Um, and that, that's what I find so very interesting about Oriental medicine, because there are some things I'll bet that are now extinct. Have you ever run into that before? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we've found was the use of 
uh, snake gallbladder or bear gallbladder um, because of uh, endangered species and, and uh, uh, some of the uh, issues with animal rights, those things are taken off, off the table. Deer antler is another one. You know, deer oh, yeah. antler has been I've used for virility for a long time. Uh, some of those were taken off the list. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's fascinating stuff. They, they do similar things down in uh, the jungle. Um, they'll boil down. Here's a really good example. They'll take a, a boa and, of course, kill it and cut it up into pieces, throw it into a pot, maybe more than one, because there's plenty of them down there, and just boil it, boil it, boil it, boil it. Eventually, uh, they'll scoop out you know, all the bits and pieces and parts that are left over from being boiled for so long. And they end up with this very thick uh, grease. And it's called boa grease. If you take a person, for example, who has an arthritic hand or, you know, bad elbow. In other words, an arthritic part of their body where it just doesn't want to work and it's hurting. And you rub that on there, within a few minutes, the pain is gone and they have full flexibility and mobility. Now, they might have to redo that periodically, but that just gets rid of it. Uh, they also have uh, something called siete oraces, which basically seven roots that they collect. I don't know what these roots are. We ran into this deep in the Amazon actually right up into the Andes Mountains on the eastern slope. And it's a bit of an alcoholic beverage. But you can take a just a you know half of a shot of that and if you've got any pain in your body it just goes away. And it'll stay away for days. Uh, so you know that is terrifically fascinating to me. And you know the work that you do and what you know is equally fascinating i think it's just amazing and I'm, I'm really impressed with you know uh your knowledge and, and what you do that's that's fantastic really have you ever heard of traditional chinese medicine wine before no so there is uh there are recipes we were not taught them in school but they are, are out there and i have access to them where there are specific herbs that you take that you can uh, put in glass bottles and use uh, alcohol and you bury it in the ground and you ferment this stuff for a period of time. And there are medicinal, they call it medicinal wine, and it's reported to have all kinds of benefits, a, a, a very strong aphrodisiac benefit um, for uh, you know uh, people that have uh, low libido, or menopausal symptoms, things like that. So there, there's a whole host of, um, like you said, things that were omitted, ancient uh, techniques and herbs that were omitted in modern time from, from modern schools just because of the nature of, you know, what they are or how they're extracted. So that's something, do a little research on that. But look up, look up traditional Chinese medicine wine. That I will. be an interesting topic for you guys to think about. Yeah, I will. And is it just herbs or do they put insects in it as well? Oh, gosh. They use all kinds of things. Um, I mean, we 
I, I have some Chinese herbs that I, I use for patients right now that are um, the enzymes that come from the silkworm, uh, serapeptidase or serapeptase mm -hmm. mixed with herbs um, to help with uh, fibrin, uh, people that develop scar tissue or people that have plaque in their arteries. Right. It helps dissolve plaquing. It does. I use that very commonly. And that's, uh, you know, silkworm. Uh, there are different insects that are used, uh, different types uh, like gypsum and uh, you name it. You know, it, it's been used, I'm sure. Well, the reason I was asking is because that um, siete reses I was telling you about, seven roots, when you look in the bottle, boa. you almost, you don't want, oh. not the boa, the wine, the um, seven roots wine. Mm -hmm. uh, you look in the bottle, you really don't want to try it as your first reaction because the giant ants that are in it and cockroaches and right bugs really uh, jungle bugs and it's like are you are you kidding you want me to right. taste this yeah you know the my guides are going really jerry you should do it you don't want to insult them I've heard that before i i'd right. rather insult them than to eat guinea pig you know <laughs> So I took a little capful, tasted right. it. It was pretty stout stuff, a little bit of a, a bite to it. But wow, just warmth went through my body. It's like, wow, I feel something happening here. This is really good, really good stuff. I was thinking maybe I'd buy some and just have it with me, but I we, we left there and never went back that direction through the mountains. So yeah, that, that was trippy. I was, I was watching, um... Yeah, I was watching a podcast with uh, Joe Rogan, and he had a guy on who um, traveled to, and I don't remember what part of the world it was, maybe Tibet, and he climbed this mountain face, and he went to get this very specific kind of um, honey that has some psychedelic properties to it. Oh, sure, and I've heard of this. Medicinal and psychedelic. Yes. Yeah. So I, I watched this entire episode and I'm thinking to myself, and he, he brought this, you know, big, thick jar with him on the show and they're, they're doing it. And uh, he's, he's the guy who went and got it is waiting for Joe to have this psychedelic experience, I guess. And he's in the same time talking to him about his brother who sent him text messages while he was taking spoonfuls of this honey, this, I call it trippy honey. Um, and he was basically saying, you know, my brother first says, I feel warm. I feel tingly, not a good idea, bad idea, feel terrible, feel nauseous, room is spinning. You know, he's going through all these iterations while, you know, he just watched the show host take a tablespoon of it. So I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> Oh, that's. So I would funny. never do that to you, Jerry. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. You can give it a try. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm game for things like yeah. that. You know, it's, it's, it reminds me of taking ayahuasca. You know, it's there's a point where you're going, oh hell, this was not a good idea, but you know it has its benefit later. I've heard. Um, we were at about an hour. Would you like to take a break and come back, and we'll. Um, Go a little bit further and yeah yeah i'd like to talk to your audience about uh ears and the clock ears and the clock and then we'll we'll wrap it up after that 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a comment. Subscriptions and your comments cost nothing, but it really helps us out a lot. To hear the entire interview you were just listening to and many, many other amazing interviews within our archives, please visit jerrywillshow.com and become a member. Your membership supports our ongoing broadcasts. That's jerrywillsshow.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this program.